I will call your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is not a Jewish faith. This is not a Gentile faith. This is a faith that will be represented by every tongue and every tribe and every people on the face of the planet. Let's pray. Father, as we move now into further worship through the preaching of Your Word, I ask that what we have already done by looking at Your Word, by singing it in response, would really take root now in the sermon. Turn our minds and focus our eyes even deeper into the truth of the Gospel. Help us to understand our need of Jesus Christ. Not as a fixture or as an arrangement, or as a picture on the outside, but as the foundation, the cornerstone of our lives. It's in His great name we pray. Amen. We may be seated. Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. <clears throat> Will your house stand or fall? That's the question that uh, you know, I have for you today. Or we could say, is your, life, is your life going to survive the tragedy that's coming just around the corner? That's the question that needs to be answered. The fact is, everybody in here is going to suffer. I know some of you have survived to this point without facing any major crisis in your life. But, but take the time to spend some time around your family, around your friends, around your acquaintances, around people at work, and just listen to them. And what you'll find is that nobody goes through this life without suffering. Suffering and tragedy and hard times strike everyone. There's no exception to that. You can read the paper. You can look on the internet. You can watch the daily newscast. And it's obvious that suffering is a common factor among every people on the planet. It's not just in the third world countries where people are starving to death by masses, but it's in the United States. People are suffering. More homeless people now than ever before in the United States of America. More people 18 years or younger living under the line of poverty in the United States than ever before. The world around us is a place of suffering. And all of us are going to suffer. Some of it will come from finances. Some of it will come from marriage. Some of it will come from death. Some of it from disease. Some of it from things that I could never know and you could never know sitting here today. We couldn't expect it. We couldn't see it coming. But the question that needs to be answered today in preparation for when you suffer is, will your life survive? Will you come out the other side? Will you make it? Now, Having said that, I want to answer the question for a large number of people in our world. Every 14 minutes in this nation, someone will die from a self-inflicted wound. Suicide. In 2009, which is the latest available information. It was the 10th leading cause in the United States of America of death of all categories. A million people in 2009 recorded as trying to kill themselves in the United States of America. <clears throat> it strikes every state, it strikes every city. At some point in your life, I dare say, you'll face it in your family, in your friends, in your own mind. And that question needs to be answered. Because the leading, the leading indicator <clears throat> in suicide, by the way, the rate's rising every year. It's the highest it's been since 1993. The one thing 1993 and 2012 have in common is both years are recessions. Both years are economic downturns. You see, one of the leading reasons people commit suicide is loss of job, foreclosure on a home, bankruptcy of a business. It's one of the leading reasons people end their life. 
And have you interviewed them six months before they did it? I dare say most of them would have said, no, I'll never do anything that drastic. Nothing could be that bad. Another leading cause is divorce. A man comes home, he's worked hard, he knows there's trouble in his marriage, but he's hoping it'll turn and he gets the Dear John letter. She's gone. She's taken her his kids. His house is empty. There's nothing left. His life is decimated. Research shows that when the economy drops, suicide rate rises. Research shows that when divorce strikes, it is a cause for many to end their life. <clears throat> we can look at any statistic any way you want to. I mean, there's those statistics out there down to what city in the United States is most likely to have suicide occur. Should you be surprised that Las Vegas is the number one city for suicide in the United States of America? Will your life survive? We could look at these statistics and we could explain them away with mental disorders and people that struggle from split personalities and real diagnosable problems. But the fact is, middle America, white males, 49 to 65, that's the leading suicide victims in our nation. Jesus gives us a stark warning at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6, 46-49. And I think it relates to this suicide rate in some ways. Not absolutely. There are other causes for suicide. Don't leave here saying, the preacher said, if I'm a Christian, I won't commit suicide. Christians do commit suicide. I'm not saying it's the only cause, but I think there's a peak when you look at suicide into the window of the soul of the human and what they're banking on, what they're counting on. And when it's ripped away, then all of life isn't worth living anymore. Jesus says it this way, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, do what, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. John and Sandy, living in their dream retirement home, in 2005, came home to see that their house had collapsed. Not the whole house, not the whole structure, but the main wall on the north side of their house had fallen in. And so therefore the house was ruined. It was gone. Standing there being interviewed, and you know, I always wonder, like, why do they come interview people in this state? You know, like, that's like asking the coach when he's losing or lost the biggest game of his career. You know, how do you feel right now? Do you really want me to answer that question? I mean, now magnify that by a hundred and this dude's looking at his house. He's worked his whole life and the house he worked his whole life and built and bought and paid for is laying almost literally flat on the ground. And now you just want to ask like, did you see this coming? Oh yeah, I saw it coming, just didn't want to do anything about it. And I'm reading about this account and... They're in shock, obviously. I mean, you don't leave to go out on town and come home and the house fell down. I mean, that's not a normal thing. Door left unlocked. Somebody leaves it standing wide open. Windows left open. It rains inside. That's normal stuff. But your house falling, that just doesn't happen. And the guy says, I just never expected this. I'm like, no, surely you didn't. <laughs> you know, you just people's shock responses are amazing sometimes. You're like... I would have never thought this would happen to us in a thousand years. No, you wouldn't, would you? That doesn't happen normally. But as they researched why the house collapsed, they came to find because they were really concerned. They lived in a subdivision where all the houses going to start falling. You can imagine you come home, your neighbor's house fell down, and you're thinking, the same guy built my house. 
You know, there's panic. And so the local authorities investigated and come to find out the subdivision is built over a fault line. The subdivision developer didn't do his homework. He didn't realize what he was dealing with. He built on what he thought was a good foundation. The problem is the foundation shifted. And the house didn't stand. And I guess my whole point about the suicide rate and my point about will you survive is I think Jesus answers that question for us. Will you survive the next tragedy that strikes your life? Only if the foundation is good. If the foundation isn't good, your house, your life will collapse. It may collapse dramatically, like suicide, or it may just collapse into oblivion where you just walk through as a ghost, a shadow through the rest of your years. Hopeless, helpless, crushed, defeated. Not seeing life as anything worth living. Look at the text. Jesus says confession without obedience is worthless. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, what he's saying is you confess with your lips that I am Lord, but nothing in your life accords with that confession. Nothing would indicate to me that you really believe I'm the Lord of your life. That's what Jesus is saying. This is Luke's shorthand account. Hold your place here, and we're going to do this a little, so you might want to hold your place. Matthew 7, same sermon, same context, same everything. Matthew's writing the same thing that Luke writes, but he expands on our first sentence. In our text it says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus is asking, or he's saying, your confession is worthless because you don't do what I tell you to do. You don't obey, right? Look at Matthew 7. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, you see the words, Lord, Lord. This is for expression. This is, not, uh, this is not a coincidence that they both use Lord, Lord. This means it's said with conviction. When you hear it twice, it's said with conviction. These people sound good. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? The people who obey my Father. Look what he says. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says confession. No matter how true the confession is in fact. No matter how true it is. No matter how orthodox it is. Orthodox. What do I mean? Truthful. God is one. God is three in one. God has the right, because He's the Creator, to destroy all flesh. Because all flesh is sinful. To remedy the problem... He sent His Son, who was perfect and sinless in every way according to the law, lived the perfect life, died the sinner's death on the cross, and was raised from the dead on the third day. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father, from which He will return, having guarded us with the Holy Spirit our whole lives, and make us alive, both the living and the dead. That's the Apostles' Creed. Right? You can recite the Apostles' Creed your entire life, and when you come before Jesus Christ on the final day, Matthew says, He will say, I don't know who you are. This is designed to strike fear in the heart of people sitting in pews like this. Jesus is very intentional. He's trying to scare you. People often say, don't you scare tactics. Jesus does. You don't think everybody standing there listening to Him, sitting there listening to Him, at that moment looked around and thought, man, am I one of those people? You don't think the twelve started looking around like, well, I'm pretty good, but I mean, I'm worried about James. 
I, I mean, Matthew, he's a tax collector. He's got a long way to go. I mean, it's designed for that. So that everybody looks at themselves and says, is he going to tell me he doesn't know who I am when I get there? And I'm telling you that if you're basing him knowing you on your confidence in your confession alone, what you know to be true, I want to tell you, James says, you're at the level of a demon now. Because the demons know who he is. And the demons know orthodox doctrine. Matter of fact, don't fool yourself. They know it better than I do. They know it better than you do. They know it better than the systematic theology professor at the seminary. The demons know it all. And they will burn in hell for all of eternity. Because they don't know Christ. Jesus says, if you confess with your mouth, it's worthless if there's no life to back up your confession. John 6 22 through 26 comes to mind as I think about this concept. And maybe it's because I spent so much time in John, but a lot of times my mind goes there. John seems to cover it all. Here he covers it. Same thing Luke's saying. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you to do? Jesus in John 6 teaches the fact that He's the bread of life. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 26, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you are, were filled and ate the loaves that I provided for you when I fed the 5,000. Do not labor for food that perishes, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Later in the text, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall, have never, shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Everybody's tracking along? You understand what he's saying? You have to have me to have life. If you don't have me, you don't have life. The will of the Father is that I don't lose anybody who has me. I won't. I'm going to raise them all up on the last day. <clears throat> but look at verse 66. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And so He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted by My Father. 66 should again strike fear. After this, many of his, what? What are they? Disciples. Followers. Left. They turned back and they no longer walked with him. The hard sayings of Jesus have caused many who with their mouth profess faith to turn back and not follow him any longer. Hard sayings like Matthew 16, 24-26, which says, Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone could come, would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up the instrument of his death, the cross, and follow Me. The cross is something neat that we wear around our neck or put on a pendant and wear it on our, on our lapel of our coat. But the cross in Jesus' day was an instrument of death. It was gory. It was so gory that it took centuries before the Christians ever adopted it as a sign of Christianity. 
Thus the ichthus, which was the fish, that fish that you see everywhere, that was the earliest symbol that we can find in the catacombs of Rome to symbolize Christianity, was the fish, or fish and bread. That was the way they symbolized, but never a cross. Why? Because a cross was an ugly instrument of death. So when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, He explains what denying Himself means. It does not mean... Play less video games, watch less TV, read more books. It means die. Deny yourself. What does that mean? It means pick up the instrument of your death and follow after me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his very soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The hard sayings of Jesus have caused many people to turn and stop following. Statements like Matthew 16. Statements like John 6. They're hard sayings. The Bible's filled with them. The Gospels are filled with them. Jesus' life is filled with these hard sayings. John Piper wrote a book. The hard sayings... That Jesus has the hard things God has com- Jesus has commanded of the world. It was the essence of the book. Daily devotionals about the hard sayings of Jesus. They're everywhere. They're not the exception, they're the rule. When Jesus says, Will your life stand or will it fall when tragedy strikes? He tests whether it will stand or fall based on the foundation, which is himself. And then He says, if you want to know whether you're on Me or not on Me, do these things. If you obey Me, then you're following Me. If you don't obey Me, you're not following Me. Oh, but Lord, I have a good confession. Many will confess Me on that day. And I will say, I don't know who you are. Well, but I do good things for Jesus. Many people did good things for Jesus when they stand in front of the judgment seat. He'll say, you didn't do them for Me. I don't even know who you are. Lord, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and not do what I command you to do? That's the first point. Confession without obedience is worthless. Confession without obedience is like the confession of the Pharisees. Mark 7, verses 14 through 23 says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. So hear me, and really hear me. Hear me and put it into application. Understand what I'm telling you, Jesus says. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the thing that comes out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all food clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Why do you say, Lord, Lord, and then you don't do what I command you? Why do you not follow me? Jesus is saying your mere confession is worthless without obedience. And we see obedience not from what you do on the outside, but from what comes from within. In other words, you can't fake disobedience. You can't fool God with outward works. A lot of people have tried that. I tried it for years. From the time I was five until I was 19, I lived a life that basically was descriptive of the Pharisees. I was the all-American kid. I made good grades in school. I was an athlete. Not only an athlete, but the captain of all the athletic teams at my school. I was successful in athletics, successful in the classroom, friends with those who needed to be friends with. I was the chaplain for my class every year, was tasked with getting up 
on a regular basis and presenting God's Word and explaining it from 7th grade till I was in the 12th grade. Gave the team devotionals. I was that guy. On the outside, I was acceptable. But what came out of my heart was lust, cursing, hate, anger, self-righteousness, judgmentalism. What I was before God is a sinner. And I'm not foolish enough to think that there's not a lot of you in here the same way. I really believe that. The greatest struggle for the people of Grace Fellowship is not that you're going to fall one day precariously into some gross immorality. That may happen to a few of us. But for most of us, we will live good lives until we die and face Jesus. And our lives collapse like a house of cards. Because what's inside doesn't match what comes out of our mouth in confession. Jesus is very pointed. He says in verse 46, they, this is not a small category, but this seems to be a large number of people. Notice He addresses it to everybody in the crowd. He doesn't say, well, you know, for this crowd over here, you just don't worry about what I'm about to say. It doesn't apply to you. You've passed the test. He leaves everybody in the balance. Well, what does He say, though? Look at verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Luke is operating off of a very Greek uh, understanding of architecture and building science. This is the way Greeks built buildings. They dug deep. They laid the foundation. They tied it in to something substantial and they built up from there. The Hebrew people didn't build this way. They built what mainly accorded to basically houses that sat on top. Okay? The Greeks did this because in their world they had good experience with rivers, mountainous Terrain led to melting snow, led to swelling in the spring of the rivers, which flooded and beat against their houses. And if your house is sitting on the surface and the flood beats against it, it knocks it down. So we got it tied into something. So he's using this very, Luke in his writing here, Jesus' words, he's applying it in a very real way to the people he's speaking to. He's saying, you have to come to me, hear me, and do what I say. Your life will tell you whether this is true of you or not. Built on the rock, it stands. Built on the sand, it falls. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? John 6, again, was instructive, wasn't it? Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me. And everyone that comes to me, I will not cast out. Coming to Jesus is not coming to this church. Coming to Jesus is not walking down the aisle. Coming to Jesus is not saying a prayer. Coming to Jesus, in, in fact, has nothing to do with any of those things. Coming to Jesus is hearing with understanding and doing. Because look how, how they're all tied together, in other words. The coming, the hearing, the doing. It's all tied together. Why? Because if the man just dug a hole, his house wouldn't be built. If the man laid a foundation, he's still not fully built. But it's when the house comes out of the ground that his work is completed. Coming is not enough. Hearing, by itself understanding, is not enough. The doing... The obeying is part of the task. So we must come, hear, and do. We must hear the inward call of God, come to that call, believing with our hearts and confessing with our mouths that Christ is Lord, and then live a life. 
That's the building of the house. The foundation's not the house. The foundation's what the house is built on. It's not enough to come one time, say a prayer, go home. I'm a Christian. No. The biblical picture is coming, hearing, obeying. Matthew, again, is instructive in explaining exactly what Jesus is saying to us here in this parable. He says in the same way in, verse, in, this, in these verses that it's, it's the end judgment that will finally say whether the house stands or falls. Luke, rather, is focused on the day-to-day life that proves whether the house is built or not built on the rock. So, here we have this truth. Jesus says belief or confession is not enough without obedience. So Jesus says the proof of the profession is the foundation of the life. The proof of true profession is the foundation of life. What ultimately we have to go to is not, we can't stop with the outward, we have to go beyond that to what is the house built on, and that's the foundation. But how do we see a foundation? How do we know the foundation by the life that comes out of the foundation? So, well, you said we can't look at the life by itself. No, you can't look at it by itself. Anybody can look good on the outside for a time. Anybody can look good maybe for years. You had to go to the foundation. But once you've gone to the foundation, then you had to go back and look at the life. It's both and. It's not just, I say I'm a Christian, so I'm a Christian. It's, I say I'm a Christian, and I have a life that accords with godliness. I have a life that is built on the foundation. It looks like Christ. Christ is the foundation. Building on the Ezekiel 13.10 passage where this exact parable is given by Ezekiel, Jesus says that the law is not the foundation, but He is the foundation. You can't build your life. The problem with the Pharisees, they built their life on the law. Their lives are founded on good works. So therefore, they weren't in the kingdom of God. They were close, but not there. Jesus is saying, the life is not built on the law. The life is built on me. I am the foundation. If your life is built on me, then it will stand. It will not only stand the trials of this life, but it will stand the judgment that is to come. Let me tell you what I came to found at 19 years old after 12 years of faking it. And faking it really good at times. I came to realize in my own story that Jesus was like a chair in my living room of life. Sometimes he was a little bigger than that. Sometimes he was like, you know, the interior, the whole interior decoration of my house, of my life. The seasons of my life looked a lot like a Christian in all that time. But what I've come to find out is those first 19 years of my life, the foundation of my life was me. It was me. How good can I be? How how many people can I cause to like me? I'm not going to participate in this sin because then the people that I love the most won't like me. It was all about me. I was the foundation of my life. And finally at 19, God mercifully opened my eyes. He graciously gave me eyes to see Jesus for who He really is. And Jesus went from being a fixture in my house or the interior decoration of my house to being the foundation, the bedrock, the only hope that I have. Outwardly, my life changed, but, but it was in small inward things that really I could see the difference and those who knew me best could. It wasn't some grand, for me, it wasn't some grand Paul on the road to Damascus experience coming to salvation, seeing Jesus. It was more of this inward reality that my life is counting on me. If I die today, I'm the only hope I've got. 
And so there wasn't some massive rearrangement. Like I was already going to church. I was already leading Bible studies. I had already surrendered to be a preacher. There wasn't a lot of change in those outward things. What changed was the foundation. Who was I counting on? I can say with full confidence that I don't believe I would be here today except that He's the foundation. The Gospel is the bedrock. It's my only hope. As we look at the text, it says they dug down deep. What did they dig through? Well, layers of sand in their, geography, I mean, in their, in their, in their geological structure. They dug down through the sand and built their house on a rock. But in our lives... Digging down means we dig away from our self-righteousness. We throw out our pet sins. We begin to dig deeper than the surface and see who we really are when the lights are off and no one's watching. Who am I in my mind? Who am I in my heart? It doesn't matter if Amy thinks I'm a great husband and a good man and a good father. What matters is in my own mind, in my own heart, am I? following Christ or not. It doesn't matter that the people in Grace Fellowship see me as a good pastor and a good teacher and a talented speaker. None of that really matters. When the lights are off and it's just me and God, what matters is, have I dug past all of that and found Christ is enough? Because there's going to be plenty of days that Amy doesn't think I'm a great husband. And you're not going to think I'm a good teacher. And you're going to be mad at me for not doing what you think a pastor should do. And when that comes out, even those little trials will start to reflect where my hope is. When, when I get the email tomorrow morning that says, that sermon stunk. And my response to that will tell me where my hope is. When I'm destroyed and distraught, my hope isn't Christ. My hope is myself. That is exposed when the economy falls, when the marriage breaks up, when the kids walk away never to come again, when the doctor gives the diagnosis. All the other things, the sand that sits above the rock, the self-righteousness, the situations of life, the talents, your abilities, that all must be dug through, bypassed. You can't lay your foundation there. Grace Fellowship, what I'm saying is we've got to become a people who are certain of where our hope is. Because the storms are here. If they haven't struck you yet, just wait. Just hang around. There used to be a joke that followed around here. If you got asked to be an elder in this church, people got nervous. And they go home to the wife. They talked to me about being an elder and the wife cringed. Oh my goodness. You know, don't go to the doctor. Let's don't have babies. Because there was a time in which suffering was everybody. It wasn't just a few. It was everybody in leadership here was suffering in some way. Everybody in the congregation, it seems at times, is suffering in some way. So if you've bypassed it, just hang around. It'll get to you. Suffering's coming. And what will be obvious is your foundation in those days. I think about the lives of our own congregation and the way the foundations are shown. <clears throat> and the suffering that people have been through. Both what we think is small and what is great. It doesn't matter. Everyone here has suffered in some way. And to see Christ persevering in you and through you is what makes my heart glad. To see you not walk away from the faith. To see you continuing to hold. You see, coming to Christ is enough. It's enough to hold you in life's storms. It's enough to get you through that final judgment. The Gospel is enough. You don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to put any sand between the rock and the foundation. You need to lay the foundation of your life on the rock, on the man, on the person, Jesus Christ. If you don't, it will give way.
Jesus says that the proof of our profession is the foundation of our life. We look at Scripture and we see it, don't we? In the life of Saul. Saul's life looked good. The king of Israel, standing head and shoulders above all men, a great warrior in his time, a brilliant leader of military tactics. He won battles, he won wars. And God said, go to the Amalekites. I want you to take the army of Israel and I want you to destroy everything. I want you to destroy men, women, children. I want you to destroy donkeys, beasts of burden, everything. Don't leave anything. Burn everything. Devote it to me because they persecuted my nation, my people, my name when it came out of Egypt. I want you to dedicate that whole country to me. Saul's greatest trial was his success. He whipped the Amalekites. The problem was he took from the Amalekites their king alive, the choicest of their servants and women and animals. And he brought them back to camp with him. And Samuel said, Saul, why did you not obey? Why didn't you just do what God said to do? Saul's answer, I didn't want to take them. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. But, you know, you weren't here. And, and, and I was concerned that you've been delayed. And so I just took these as a choice sacrifice to God. And Samuel gave him the warning. Obedience is better than sacrifice, Saul. He didn't learn the lesson. Next time he went into battle, he did the same thing. And this time he went a step further in his disobedience. He not only saved some alive, but he offered up sacrifices. He played the part of a priest. Samuel came. said, have you done what God told you to do, Saul? Yeah, I did it. Well, then why the bleeding of these sheep? Why the smell of this sacrifice? Will you not ever be satisfied with what I do for God? That was, that's the essence of His... You're never going to approve of me? I've worked hard. The foundation was exposed. He was his foundation. Samuel then hacks up everybody and says, the kingdom's gone. It's ripped from you this day. And he turned and walked and Saul grabbed his garment out of anger. He grabs his garment out of frustration. He grabs his garment out of being exposed to be the fake and phony that he was. He grabbed Samuel by the garment and it ripped away. And he said, just as you rip my garment, so will God rip the kingdom from you this day. The foundation, the storm of life for Saul was success. He won the battle. He just didn't obey. Since this, is, this scripture is shown to us in pictures like David. It was the time that men of battle went off to war. And David stayed behind at the palace. And he went to the roof and spied out Bathsheba. One of his favorite men, one of his most trusted servants' wives was taking a bath that time of day. And David liked to look at her. And then his heart lusted after her. And he called for her. And he had sexual relations with her. And he conceived a child with her. And he murdered her husband, one of his best friends. Nothing on the outside of David's life looks like a child of the King, of God, a follower, a disciple. Nothing. Everything looks like disaster. Nathan shows up. Nathan shows up. The prophet says there was a rich man. He had all these herds. And then there was this one poor man. He had one little ewe lamb. And the king wanted to have a feast and he killed that little ewe lamb and he took it for himself and he fed his friends off the poor man's ewe lamb. David said, the Bible says, anger rose in his heart. He said, who is this man? His intent? To kill the man. You steal from the poor, you deserve to die, son. And Nathan, can you imagine David, when Nathan pointed his finger and said, you are the man, David. Saul was exposed, the foundation of Saul's life was exposed by success 
and the foundation of David's life was exposed by utter failure, sin, and destruction, and judgment. What did he do in that moment? Go kill himself? Turn his back on his faith? No. He fell on his face before God and grieved his sin. We have Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned, O God. Create in me a clean heart and take not the spirit of your anointing from me. When the storm of life came, David stood. Not because he was better than Saul, but because the foundation was better than Saul's foundation. Because he dug down deep past himself, past his achievements, past his goodness, past his warts and his sins and his failures, and he laid the foundation and security of his life on the promise of God in Christ, and he lived. He lived. Judas left the upper room that night with Jesus having eaten the last meal and went to the high priest. And for 30 pieces of silver, he sold the Lord of glory. He went back to the garden. Jesus was there with the other 11 disciples. They're wiping the sleepy out of their eyes because they can't stay up. Just Jesus is standing there and Judas leading this great army. And the high priest comes and kisses Jesus. And Jesus is taken into custody. At that moment, the foundation of Judas's life is exposed. Now let me tell you, you think Judas is a villain, but I'm telling you Judas was an upright and good man. How do I know? You don't give a bad-charactered man the money bag. Judas kept the bank for the disciples. They trusted Him. He was the best of the best on the outside. When was He exposed? That night in the garden. He went back to the high priest. He was broken and sorrowful. Undo what I did. We can't. You've done what you've done. He went and hung Himself off the high hill of the temple. Peter cut a man's ear off. And Jesus put his sword up. And around a campfire, a little girl cowers this great warrior into a lack of faith. You're one of his disciples? No, not me. Don't know what you're talking about. No, 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 you sound like one of his disciples. No, I'm not his disciple. Yeah, I think I saw you earlier. You're one of his. In that moment, he cursed God. He cursed Christ. He turned his back on all that it appeared. He turned his back on all that he had ever believed. And the rooster crowed, and he ran into the night in tears and in sorrow. His life was sent to a tailspin. He faced suffering, he was brought to the moment of decision. And then he was on a beach. Jesus having cooked some fish. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. You know me. You can sense in Peter that you do know me, right? I do love you, right? There's not that same confidence he had displayed earlier when he's cutting off ears and he's saying he'll never desert Christ. Take care of my lambs. That carry on conversation last minute. Peter, before we're done here, do you love me? Three questions for three denials. I love you and I trust you. You know everything. You're right, Peter, you love me. The foundation of your life is me, not you. Peter should have committed suicide just like Judas did, but their foundations were different. Saul and David, Saul looked good, David looked awful. But their foundations were different. 
So where is it with you? Grace Fellowship, are you trusting the Gospel alone, the person of Christ alone for your salvation? Or is there another layer of good theology, of good works, of the idea that God owes me because I've served Him between you and Jesus? Where are you? Is your life built on the rock or not? Grace Fellowship, I'm challenging you, I'm calling you, and I'm calling myself to a life built on the rock. John 14, 15, Jesus makes it very simple. It's the point, the end, the be-all of this sermon. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. Grace Fellowship, we need not look back to the past, but rather look at our lives today. Are we following and obeying Him so that our lives accord with the foundation of Jesus Christ? Or are we just living our life decorated with Jesus, coming to church once in a while, looking good on the outside? Because when life's trials come, your foundation will be exposed, your north wall will fall in, and your house will be destroyed if it's not founded on Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the best work, sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. We sang that this morning. But is that the confession? Is that the hope of your life? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking, wasting, Sand. As we look at the end of the text, we see that the fall of the house built on sand is great. It is great because it's eternal. In the end, Jesus says that our life will either be based on the truth of the gospel, lived in obedience, or it will be destroyed. So where is it with you? Are you standing on Christ alone? Only you can answer. Only you can know. For many, the answer is yes. For some, the answer is no. For others, it's I want it to be. I want it to be. Well then, hear the word of the Gospel. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth one makes confession unto righteousness and with the heart one believes unto salvation. The answer is to believe in Christ. You can't fix the foundation. You have to lay yourself down on the foundation.